0: Welcome to Patriots of the Corps, I'm Thad Forrester. This podcast exists because of my little brother, Mark Forrester. He was angered by the attacks on 9-11, so he joined the military to help rid the world of terrorists. On September 29th, 2010, he was killed on his first deployment. From his death notification, to the dignified transfer ceremony, his viewing, funeral, and subsequent memorials, I was amazed at the new world of warriors we met. These Patriots have become close to our family and been huge supports. They stood out because of their willingness to voluntarily fight evil they believed in freedom because of their actions i started this podcast to interview great americans who serve their country and communities thank you for tuning in all right well don stevens thank you for being here on patriot of the core uh we were just talking about recent world events and with you being a uh, former combat controller are, are you are you you're retired is that right that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A little in,
1: over a little over thirty years, and and I retired about uh, about three years ago.
0: Yeah. Okay. What do you think? Uh, with with the DOD saying that nine hundred troops, roughly, are are being deployed to the Middle East right now, what role would combat controllers play if if you think they're they're part of any of that group?
1: the uh, the firsthand knowledge is kind of since had since left me. You know, you have. Uh, your suspicions and you have a good idea and and those kind of things but there's not a you know you're not asking questions you don't really need to know the answer to um but uh you know if 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 i had uh if i had my guests you know there there are people in all kinds of um specialties and roles being being positioned in whatever part of the world um in, in such a way that they can rapidly respond uh, to certain things. they can they can take those gifts and, and those talents and 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 for deploy them um, in such a way that they can make an impact., uh, so you know, I purely guess, uh, purely guess there's, there's probably guys in, in, in and and units and personnel that are that are uh, you know staged in, in in various at various levels in different locations. Um, what does that look like or or you know what's going to be their role? uh that's that's really hard to say that's really is, is going to be up to uh combatant commander and uh, the entire echelon uh downstream from there um but you know combat controllers have their have their specialties and you know there's a there's a t-shirt that says um you know we do it all and that's because you know while while combat controllers can go in uh, and, and you know, dive operations and jump operations and halo operations and all those kind of things, you know, the bread and butter really is in the air to ground integration, right? Taking those, those air power assets and, and being able to bring forward some very uncommon uh, capabilities, um, air traffic control background to joint terminal attack control um, and a number of other things it really sets the stage for a lot of things in soft dust. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, extracting uh, people from uh, torn up buildings or doing some type of rescue or bringing in aircraft and supplies and so on and so forth. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, whole slew of uh, operations that have to happen. Um, and the, uh, the combat control career field kind of brings that capability, those, those things to fruition. Um, because you have to have access, right? You have to have access. You have to have some kind of penetration um, to be able to do those things. Uh, so I, I think they're going to play a pretty important role with, with uh, you know, like they always have um, with with everything that's going on.
0: You you to me seem very unique, and you'll have to just tell me and correct me where I'm wrong. Is you didn't start out in combat control? You you went through at like 32 years old. So we talk about that experience, what you did before and then why you went into combat control. And then how was it? Because, you know, 32, you got an ego check. You got to I think you got to have there for sure. That, that had to be uh, uh, it, not just anybody could have done that. I don't think for several reasons.
1: Yeah, it's different. Um Yeah, your your, your ego gets checked pretty quick. Uh So think about. When you were 18, you think about someone that's 32. You're like, "Gosh, man, I never want to be that old." You know, um, imagine going through that uh, that that pipeline process. Super rigorous, super physically demanding, uh, mentally demanding, emotionally draining. And Sometimes um, it it was uh, one of the greatest experiences I ever had. Um, but yeah, it's a very different for an older guy that has already deployed, already done a few things in another career field uh to to come in and now you're the new guy so i i was 32 when i retrained and that was a that was a whole endeavor by itself i was a um i was in security police and security forces and i was a criminal investigator and um i originally wanted to come in and and be a combat controller uh but the the wait time for me to get a seat at doc uh was, was pretty lengthy and uh Candidly, uh, I was 19 years old and I needed to get out of town. You know, there's a lot of influences in the in and around the Cincinnati area. So, um, my dad was a was a cop in the Air Force. He made a career out of that. So it made sense uh, that I would go in uh, in the security police and with the option of retraining. You know, in short time uh, for me, that wasn't a short time. It was that was you know, more than a decade later. um, And I was a tech sergeant uh, when I, when I retrained. And so um, physically, you know, I I think I was there. um, And, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, when I was 19 years old, I probably didn't have the maturity and I probably didn't have the discipline uh, that was required to get yourself through that process. You know, I mean, hats off to the to the young guys and gals that, I mean, the young guys that that have made it through this, this, that process. Um, and at such a young age, I don't, I don't think I had the maturity at the time. So I, I think all that, that time period was a, was a blessing um, in that I wasn't ready. You know, I probably, and that, that's just in my head. Uh, so at 32 years of age, yeah, I was, I was more than ready. Uh, I was a little heavy though. Um, not heavy as in, in fat, I was just kind of a bigger guy. Right. So, uh, I think I arrived there at, at, at um, at Lackland, you know, I was probably pushing two thirty five, pretty lean. Um, How tall? uh, about a little less than six one. So, you know, I'll just say six foot. Yeah. So, um,
0: and there was a lot of running
1: involved. Right, and I can I could run pretty decently. I you know I, I did a lot of training leading up to it. I played football and and, and ran track um, in, in high school and did a little bit of wrestling. My dad was a judo sensei, so you know I, I physicality wasn't new to me. Uh, but this is a different level of physicality, this is a different level of intestinal fortitude, and kind of mental toughness to get through it. Um, so I felt like I was well prepared when I got down there. But what happens when you get at Lakeland? Uh, especially if you're a senior guy. So I was a tech sergeant. I'm surrounded by airman basics. I've got like a second lieutenant uh, fresh out of wherever. And, uh, and they, they give you this vest, you know, cause you're the leader. Right. Um, and that vest has one, two pound weight in it and it has a whole bunch of empty pouches. Uh, I think we start off with 56, uh, 56 kids in that, in that, uh, that orientation to uh to get accepted so to speak um and every time one of those guys would quit every time one of them would you know just just wash out or couldn't muster or got injured or something and and couldn't make it um while their two pound weight had to go somewhere uh and so that's what that's what i got to
0: wear so because you were the highest ranking right
1: yeah and listen i had a second lieutenant with me but okay and, and he had a vest as well uh, and it, it's kind of a metaphor for the uh the weight, you know, and um, I hate to call it a burden, you know, but the weight and the burden of leadership. uh, but it's it's also a privilege, right? And so I had the privilege of wearing that that weighted vest with constant reminders when I was you know, we were off running you know three miles or whatever because uh, you kind of start off slow. um when I say slow, I mean small distances we weren't running six 10 miles yet um and so uh so that was an interesting thing you know 30 years old man body's taking a few beatings um but i wasn't as old as i am now where you know going through it now would be just wow that would be tough um so uh yeah so so being in that environment you know and you have cadre who have been there and done that in a lot of different ways Um, that are younger than you they've been in the uh they've been in the military less time than you and and all those kind of things i mean you have to approach that kind of thing with no matter what you you know or you think you know or how you feel about yourself you have to approach that kind of thing with a certain level of uncommon humility and that kind of became a theme um for what i would talk to young guys at the units about is uh is carrying yourself with that uncommon humility because it's a different thing. You know, you're going into a place as a new guy. Um, And it was, yeah, it was interesting. You know, you get to go through the pipeline. um, And on graduation day at Combat Control School, Master Sergeant results came out. And uh, I was on the list. So now, not only am I a brand new guy, you know, getting through this pipeline, uh, but I'm going to arrive the teams as a senior NCO. Um, and uh, one of the cadres uh, who I consider a good friend, uh, they're all good friends of mine now. They, they might be mean to you in the pipeline, but they're, uh, they're mm-hmm. really with absolute purpose and intention with everything they do. Um, he said, <laughs> I'll leave all the expletives out You know, but he basically said, what the hell are we going to do with a master sergeant um, that doesn't know squat? Okay. yeah, Um, And that's an absolutely fair and honest and true question. It's like, how's this going to work out, you know, with this new guy? Um, And uh, and I thought it was fair at the time. I was like, that's a great question. I guess we're going to see how this goes. Um, But you end up you end up kind of adopting that mentality. At least I did. And I, and I think that's, you know, those are the kind of things that um, I think um, led to my success and kind of getting in with the teams, getting in with the guys is you you get on team. Um, My, I started off with silver team at the two, three. um, And then I took over blue team at the two, three. And uh, you know, I had Chris Grove and a number of different guys and, while I outranked and I was the, I was a team chief, I was a team sergeant. um, I have to, I have to constantly remind myself that I don't know as much as some of these guys, some of these guys that are senior airmen, staff sergeants, you know, been deployed as combat controllers once or twice had more experience in that world than I did. So it was, it was very humbling. It was very humbling. And then you have to strike a balance somehow between I have to lead People, I have to. Um, I have to first master my profession, and so I can be an example, right? Um, so you go through that process, and then, then once I'm able to do that, um, I have to be able to hand down everything that I know and everything that I've learned along the way, and just strike that really weird balance between um, being a leader, being confident, being competent, and at the same time being humble and and having thick skin and being able to joke with the guys like, Hey man, I'm still the new guy. You know, you're their boss, but you still have to say that, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, you have to, you have to let them know, Hey, and I'm not all that in the bag of chips. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the new guy here. Um, but I'm going to take you everywhere that I think that you need to go um, to be successful.
0: So. That sounds like, uh, like, I mean, it work in the, even in the, also the civilian world, like I've, I've started to work at a place where I was brand new and yes, I was a senior materials manager, but I knew Jack squat about this place and really what they did. Cause it was a new company. I found the people that had been there a while and seemed to care <laughs> and said, Hey, how do we do this? How do you do this? You know, teach me because there's something definitely I'm bringing something to the table. But I don't know Jack squat about the actual processes with that particular company. I mean that I think that's huge for the people that you're with, working with and managing.
1: It is. I, I you know I think um, people will always remember how competent or incompetent you were. They they will. Um, but more importantly, um, once you get past that, they they won't think anything about it because it, it becomes the expectation yeah, you're supposed to know your job. You're supposed to be dedicated to be good, being good at your job. Um, but the thing that will be lasting uh, with them long beyond, you know, hey, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Okay, this guy's doing okay. Hey, this guy's actually really good at his job. At that point, nobody's thinking about whether or not Thad or Don or anybody else is, you know, they were great, you know, they sucked at the beginning, you know, then they became better and you know, wow, they're a superstar. They don't think about those things because the expectation is you're a superstar. You know, you you do your job well. Um, what what will be lasting for them is is how you conducted yourself. Um, did did you come in with a sense of arrogance or entitlement or something like that? Um, or did you or did you come in humble? You know, did you did you treat others in the same way you'd like to be treated, whether you're superior or subordinate? Um, and those are the things that will stick with people I think more than anything else it just becomes a point of um a limit of advance as far as what people are going to really care about and remember um so when you do master your profession and you're and you're in because people respect the competence of your work you know or your skill set um <clears throat> that just becomes an, a, you know a, a, a No, no need to mention it because it's uh, it's an expectation at that point.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about an aspect of uh, combat control responsibilities that I I don't think that I've covered much at all on my podcast. I've had several controllers, but the humanitarian aspect and you've had some experience in that. Will you talk about um, the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, I believe, early 2010? And then what yeah. your role was, was in that, and how you got the whole, the, the folks stood up and, and got deployed and what they were, you know, what the role of combat controllers was down there.
1: Yeah. What a, what a huge thing, right? Um, that was an interesting point in time because we were doing one, what we called one third, one third, one third rotations with three squadrons. We had um, the two, one, two, two, and the two three were sharing um, combat deployments because were just spread so thin, you know, you have this this um this high demand asset, right, in in, in special tactics, uh combat controllers, and so on and so forth. Um so you know the demand signal in in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh in Africa, and in other places was really, really high. Um, but you only have so many competent, capable, qualified, certified um Operators to go and do X, Y, and Z, along with their counterparts, 18 series, Green Beret guys, SEALs, um, Mars operators, and so on and so forth. Right, that whole entire joint force. But they they want this force multiplier of for a combat controller, and they definitely want ST guys, you know, being part of that those efforts. Um, so it, it became tough. So we're very thin. Um, we were deployed 365 days a year. And what I mean by that is um, every squadron had one third of their squadron as a minimum um, deployed uh, 365 days a year. So that was that was pretty tough. You supervise people that um, that were deployed and when they got back, you were gone. So really knowing and monitoring and being able to properly manage and lead and mentor your people became really, really challenging during those days. Um, So I, I kind of start off with that. To say I was in a um I, I was in a position there where we were doing a lot of pre-deployment training. We we're trying to get guys JTAC qualified, um, assault zone qualified, like all these different things, whole bunch of skill sets that they really have to hunt because you deploy, you come back, train, 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 prepare for deployment, deploy, come back, and you know, that cycle just kind of rinses and repeats itself. So um so I built, so I had to figure out a way to manage this monster. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at one point, you know, I've got a, I've got a PJ team, you know, with a, with a, the brand new, uh, officer. So, you know, you can't just leave them flailing around. Then you have two, uh, two other teams, which are comprised of mostly combat controllers and and a handful of tech, uh, soft tech peas. And, um, it's like, Okay, now, now I'm the master sergeant that has to manage, you know, the training and preparation deployment, you know, readiness for, for all these folks. Because we also have an alert status where people have to be on standby. Aside from the tasking for deployment, we had to have people ready to go in the event that the Haiti earthquake or something like that happens, right? So um, it was tough to balance. Um, and there is a reason that I'm telling you all this, uh, because... We were doing a, um, a jump train up as part of um, what we call CFETP. It's, it's basically line items that guys have to stay trained and current and qualified on, and then upgrade some guys <clears throat> on a few things. Um, so we were doing this week long um, kind of jump train up, you know, with some tactics involved, and some other stuff. I got, I got home and got to bed about 10 o'clock at night and um, about 10, 15, 10, 30 or so, uh, phone rings, answer. And, and all I hear is the chief on the other end saying, hey, Don, you got to come into work. You don't really ask any questions. You just roger that, you know, and hang up the phone, get a few things together, kind of spin around in your mind, like, okay, I wonder what's going on. Uh, no other requirements, just get here. Uh, so I drive in. And the uh the lights are all off and there's no cars in the parking lot, uh, you know, inside the, the compound. Is this at fire.
0: Hurlburt or are you at yeah,
1: Pope? Or... This, was, okay. this was at Hurlburt, Yep. So I arrive at the 2-3 and <clears throat> going through the gates of our squadron area there. And um there's nobody around. And I'm kind of curious, you know. I I park and I go walking in the building, there's one light on and it's in the commander's office. And I walk in there and it's the, uh, it's a I think it's the DO and the, and the chief or the DO and the commander. Uh, but either way I walked in and, you know, I'm the only guy there with the squadron leadership. And so my first comment, you know, was, uh, hey, what, what's going on? Is this an intervention? <laughs> like you guys need to talk to me about my drinking? Like what's going on here? Um, and, uh, he said, no, um, there was a, there was an earthquake in Haiti. So we've got to gin up, uh, rescue and recovery and, and assault zone, you know, air, basically airfield operations, uh, package, uh, really quick. Got to get ready to go right now. Um, so that's pretty standard for us to initiate, you know, recall and start putting all the pieces and parts together. You want, you want radio guys. And I mean, Operators really just can't get out the door fast enough without, without uh, the support folks at the squadron. Like they're, it's such an integral part of this um, without them, you know, it would, it would be, it would be tough. And that not to digress, but you know, that goes back to that uncommon humility part that I said, you know, I kind of carried that. It's something that I talked to the guys about. I'd say, you know, it's, it's cool you got a funny looking hat, you know, sexy beret, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you better realize that um, your your ability to do a lot of different things depends on a lot of different people that don't wear this hat. So don't think you're you're better than them because you're not. Um, you can think you're cool. You know, we raise guys to, to do uncommon things, you know, that require a lot of bravery and a lot of heroism. Um, but. You, you can't let that, that level of confidence ever go over into arrogance and thinking that you're something better. Anyways,
0: that's just, kind what of about, so when it comes to support staff, I think of like the guys who pack parachutes, who, who are, what are some of these roles that you're talking about for support?
1: So, um, you have, uh, radio maintainers, um, and uh, a lot of training comes from, uh, those men and women that are in those specialties. So you got radio maintainers, that uh you know they cover everything from you know line of sight radios to, to data transmission um, which we're, we won't go down that road it's really long um satellite communications and all those different kind of things because without a radio uh combat controller is, is is just another special operator that can they can shoot move and communicate um but that radio is the, uh, is is the most powerful weapon that we have. So you got those folks, you've got the, uh, you've got parachute riggers. um, Your life is in their hands every single time that you jump one of their pack chutes. They do all the inspections There's a whole bunch of stuff involved there. Um, You have vehicle maintainers, you have a dive shop, you have um, Intel, um, you know, operations without Intel is just foolish, (laughs) right? Um, They're, Everything that happens in operations, you know, everybody's like tip of the spear, you know, the sexy mission, all that kind of stuff. None of that happens without these things. Um, You have uh, air crew life support. uh, You have admin administrative people, right? You get all these functions inside of a squadron support those operations. Like those operations will never happen um, without, without all of those supporting aspects of it um so now recall right bringing all those those pieces and parts together calling support people the first person i called was chris grove and i was like I was like hey man i gotta come into work same phone call i got right and he's like gotcha he was there in pretty quick time and we just started rolling just started rolling getting getting the right um human assets in there uh for the right purposes and so that was pjs that's combat controllers Um, and, uh, and some other flavors and, uh, as well as support folks. And that's, that ran so efficiently in large, in large part, you know, because I get the, I get the tasking order. I I do some, um, some task organization, start directing priorities, all these different kinds of things. Most of that stuff, you know, you got guys like Chris Grove and some other, other guys, they understand that and they just start rolling with it. So really, really easy and efficient to work with guys that are super competent in what they do. And, and they can take orders and say, yep, yeah, roger that, boom. Uh, so we moved out really fast. And in my mind, uh, cause this is the way it kind of started off is I'm gonna be the team leader. I'm gonna be the team leader on the ground. Um, we're gonna run this airfield. We're gonna get uh, those people the help that they need. Um, whether it's uh, rescue and recovery and extraction you know, with the, with the PJs and other assets that we take in, uh, bringing, bringing air, aircraft in. So we're doing airfield analysis. You know, what are we dealing with here? And what we were dealing with was a single runway. A single runway, um, earthquake stricken country, chaos everywhere. Uh, we don't even know if we can land on it. Or are we going to have to jump in, clear the runway, and then bring another other aircraft? Because um, what you start, you start to get, there's, there's um, uh, bits of information and in intel that are like you know USAID and all these different everybody wants to come help when there's a when there's a big problem like that. What that means from us from uh, for us from a um, from an air management standpoint is there's going to be a lot of a lot of trains on that track that need to get on the ground with a single runway. How are we going to do that? So you start to analyze those things. Uh, long story short, we got that package together and ready to go, um, in, in probably around four hours or less, uh, where we could have put, um, men and equipment on a, on a, on a bird and went and did the mission. What we didn't have was a bird, so we had to wait for aircraft, so, uh, the three was ready to go, um, and uh, you know, we just had to wait for the aircraft, which is a which is an entirely different, you know, um logistical problem set um uh, with everything that's involved with not not just uh interstate air travel, but now international air travel. You can imagine all that goes into that. Um so we had them ready to go, and uh then I go back into the chief's office and they said, Hey, listen, Commander says, Hey, listen. You know, that big 18 month George cycle planning, training, training plan that you, that you built and that you're running, you know, for the squadron for our next deployment. I said, yes, sir. He goes, um, who's going to do that? You know, because we don't have very many seven level combat controllers or seven level, less seven levels, period. Um, that are going to run this training. Uh, we might need you to stay behind and make sure that the squadron's ready to go um, from an operational combat ready standpoint. And, um, I felt my heart just kind of like, uh ah, I'm getting, I'm getting pulled off the mission, you know, but it was a, it was the right call, you know, um, selfishly it's, it's like, yeah, I, I want to go on the mission. I want to lead this. I want to, I want to watch these guys, um, knock it out of the park like they always do and, uh, and do some good things to do some good in the world. Um, but the decision was made. And so with very few people to go around, that's why I led this with here was the environment with a with the you know three squadron rotation and all that kind of stuff. Um so who was gonna go in my steed? Well, uh frankly, I think uh Chris Grove could have just been the team leader. Um he had been a combat controller longer than I had at that point, you know. So um he would have been perfectly suited to do that but the decision was made to send the chief um you know along with him which is which is not a bad idea either because you know a lot of diplomatic stuff you know a whole bunch of whole host of things once you get in the country you get on the ground and people you got to deal with so uh so tony travis uh went in my steed uh and he was the chief of the squadron and uh you know well, I I wasn't happy about not going on the mission. Um, I I totally understood, and, and I think to this day it's it, it was the right decision. Um, and I think he was like named like Time Magazine, one hundred most influential people or some kind of yeah. So you know, uh, I'd rather not be on magazine covers. So that's another blessing, you know. Maybe. Maybe it's good that I didn't go because I would not have enjoyed you know that kind of publicity. So uh, that yeah. So humanitarian missions are huge, and you, and you you can look up a million not not a million, but you can look up a whole bunch of them on the internet, and and you'll see how they shake out from the uh, uh, you know the things that happened in the Pacific, you know um, the, the kids uh, trapped in the in the caves uh, in yeah. the Pacific. Yeah all those different kinds of things. You can, you can look up the impact that uh, that the operators have on them.
0: Yeah. And I've had an episode on the, the tie cave, the soccer team rescue too. So that was, that was really cool. Really interesting interview. And and Tony Travis, you know, I've tried to get him on here and my memory is not great, but I don't think he, I don't think he was interested in doing it at the time. Maybe, I don't know, That's was probably a couple of years ago, but maybe he'll join me one day on the podcast. If he ever if talk to him, just put a little bug in his ear, maybe. <laughs> yeah, if I can find him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know what? Maybe he never responded. I can't remember now. Uh, so, Don, about deployments? You know you theater theater, you had several deployments. i'm I'm I, I know I think Iraq, Afghanistan, probably Africa, probably other places. I, I know this is a real broad question, but you know just for for sake of time, as you think back and reflect on those, what are some of the what stands out? You know maybe it's some challenges. Maybe it's um how do you how you integrate? with your new team, like the ODA team or whoever you're attached to, because I know that's got to be tough. You're always the new guy. You're always the air force guy. And we talked about that, um, recently with another guest, how, no matter what you're just, you're, you're the, Oh, it was a, Oh, it was a PJ. I had a PJ on uh, Nick, Nick McKinley. And he was saying it doesn't, he's like, you're the air force guy, no matter what. So you're always having to prove yourself. How did you address that? And what are some other things that stand out with your deployments?
1: The first thing I, I started to learn and, and really think about is uh, everything that goes into preparing, you know, the the Air Force soft ST guy that's going to uh, oftentimes, you know, attach with one of these other teams um, and how, you know, what kind of deliberate process uh, happens in order to prepare them, right? So you think about it, 19, 20 years old, senior airman. Maybe twenty-one years old, E four senior airman, uh, and you're going to go join, um, you know, some some guys that had several rotations, and now you have to you have to meld into their entire culture. Um, you, they have to they have to have confidence in, in your capability, uh, in whatever your your specialty is. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot to prove every single time. Now, as I started off with you know, as a 19 or 20 year old guy, did I have the maturity and the uh, the confidence and all those different kinds of things to be able to do that as well as these guys do? I, I don't know. Um, but hats off to him because my first experience with, with doing that as a combat controller was as a master sergeant. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit different. You know, you come in with the, you know, they're like, oh, E7. Okay. Uh, that, that automatically gives you some bona fides, but you still have to you still have to prove yourself. You still have to show that um, you have to show that you're more fit than they are. You, you just have to because you're carrying more stuff than they are. Period. Not right. Um, and that uh, that you're going to be a good teammate. That you're going to be there despite the dangers, but despite the challenges, all those different kind of things. You're going to help them find solutions to any problem out there. And then once you earn a respect, man, everything just everything just flies from there. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, 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 think about one deployment where, um, my helicopter lands I drag my boxes off of the, uh, off the helicopter on, on the H L Z. the team leader, uh, who's an E who's an O3, uh, captain army captain, uh, for the SODA. uh, it's like team leader and his weapon sergeant, um. They come out to meet me, you know, we shake hands. Uh, There's a couple ATVs, throw the stuff on the ATVs. We go to the FOB. Um, I uh, check out my luxurious uh, accommodations, you know, um, and, uh, you know, you check that whole scene out. Okay, do I have power? Um, You know, can I secure this room when I sleep? You know, all those different kinds of things. You start going through all this stuff. So I've been on, on the ground for an entire, uh, maybe hour and a half, two hours. And so I'm just trying to, you know, I don't even have a chance to kind of get to know the, the guys on team. You know, we had a couple of discussions, but right away, I want to get my head wrapped around, you know, what's going on in that AO, that area of operations. So
0: I go in and I
1: see the guys that are working, um, you know, basically they are small little artillery, you know, fire center, See what kind of resources they have available to them. You know, just getting to know the lay of the land. So I'm walking outside, and boom! Big explosion. Um, We're getting hit with uh, 105s, 105 shells. Um, And as you can imagine, um, I'm still I'm still getting oriented because up to this point, the only thing I've done is I've done a ton of of map studies and research on my own and you know the interface with your with your intel folks <clears throat> find out all the information you can you read the sit reps of everything that's going on at the location prior to arriving there um and uh so i'm still getting my feet out underneath me and now
0: In your odia doesn't even know your name yet do they or do they
1: yeah like a couple of them do
0: right okay. they're
1: like where's the jtac you know <laughs> holy shit! where's the jtac excuse my language um and so so I run and I throw my ruck on and, um, you know, I already have my comms loaded. Everything's ready to go. You know, you have to, you have to arrive on the ground that way. you got to be ready to go as soon as you get there. Um, crypto fills the whole nine, whole nine yards. So, um, so I go up to the corner of this, uh, of, of this, uh, this Ford operating base and, um, and work a few aircraft and I'm, I'm trying to, Uh, trying to find out where this fire is coming from. Like, where's the enemy at? Um, Unsuccessful, right? Nobody got, nobody got killed. Nobody got injured that day, you know, did some, some damage to the, to some of the facilities there uh, on our small little footprint. Um, And so this kind of thing just became recurring. So that was like my, you know, I'm there. It's like, okay, welcome. (laughs) And uh, so then, you, you know, you don't, really have your opportunity right off the bat it's not ideal you know to go into that situation that quickly um you know but it happens um so now you know really starts to accelerate the conversations you have to have it's like hey where are you from oh you like to fish i like to fish too you know all that different kind of stuff what do you know what don't you know all right sir here's what i need i need this information in case we get uh you know a danger close situation blah 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 and you start getting down to Hey, we never know when we're going to need this information, um, so you start to exchange what you know and what you don't know, and you know that respect and rapport starts to start to develop. Um, but you know they had been dealing with this for quite a while. Um, but utilizing some of our uh, organic internal ST intel assets, you know, we were I managed to to get uh, some air, some some uncommon air assets. I'll just put it like that uh, to kind of map out a strategy and plan to identify where these where these folks were this uh, this rocket cell that kept pounding them and some other places, frankly, because um, everything it, they're hard to find uh, when everything looks the same, you know. Um, and uh, so we devised that plan, and we went out for um, for a mission to execute that plan. It, it took me; it probably took. I don't know, four to six weeks to develop this thing. Uh, you got to wait on products and uh, and all this stuff. So we went out uh, basically um, to look at some of these areas that I had mapped out uh, to try and find them. And right about the time we were thinking, gosh, you know, we, we found some evidence, uh, but we might not find them here. Uh, they kind of found us and, I'm um, in the first vehicle, we roll over the ID, um, and vehicle number two gets it. A uh, huge blast, everybody's bells wrong. rung. Uh, nobody gets significantly injured in that. And so that was an ambush. Um, long story short, you know, we ended up killing that rocket cell that day without losing any lives, um, which is pretty unbelievable. But- what
0: aircraft? What had you do it?
1: Uh, all organic weapons. So we were in a, um, you know, it was a bit of a politically sensitive environment. Uh, we were close to a border of, uh, of another another country. Really close, like there it is. Walk over, go over that way. You're, on, you're in that country. walk over this way. You're in this country. You know, um, not that short of distance, but really, really close. Um, and uh, so as soon as that happened, you know, my job, my, you know like I said the radio is um, is our number one weapon number one weapon can be really great you know shooting a rifle shooting a handgun you know doing all these different kind of things um, but at the end of the day you know that that com suite is 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 what are going to save lives and execute submissions So I'm trying to get comms right off the bat. I'm looking around um, there's smoke. You know, there's kind of confusion and chaos. And I, and I, I get out of the vehicle um, and we start we start taking fire. You know, I'm able to check on the guys. They're all pretty They're 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 were, they were protected pretty well. Um, but they're kind of just shaken up, you know, and kind of confused as to what was going on. As you can imagine, got a big bomb blow up underneath you. Um, so I'm still talking with them, conferring with the team leader. Um, trying to get a hold of uh, of the centralized location that basically apportions and allocates aircraft. Um, trying to put this in very plain terms. Um, and uh, oftentimes what happens is uh, they can hear you, but you can't hear them. You know, and Murphy's Law always applies to right? The, the time that I need it the most. Yeah. I can't get the assurance that somebody can hear us, right? We're down in this little little ravine so i have no other recourse um than to return fire as i'm running up this hill that has zero cover like there's there's no big rocks it's all just itty bitty rocks and you can barely get your footing so i'm running up this rounds flying by um yeah i'm like well this is this is a this this could be the end we'll see how it goes um because you're just exposed out there and you just you know, it is what it is. But I had to get comms and I knew that because uh, otherwise we're in a black hole and kind of nobody understands our status. And uh, finally, I get a return uh, via SAT, SATCOM. Um, you know, they were like, yep, uh, call sign one zero. Call sign wasn't my call sign. I'm just saying call sign. <laughs> uh, we've got uh, Harry, Harry, Liam, Charlie, We've got uh, two F-18s in route, uh, ten, mics, 10 nautical miles out. And so all of a sudden you get this instant feeling of relief. Like now I got to get back down the hill, not get shot. Um, and so everybody's shooting and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And I get two F-T- F-18s on station, followed by um, two A-10s, which are awesome. And then two F-15s and then... Uh, finally an AC-130 that they kind of kept overwatching while we were out there. We were trying to get the vehicle set up to tow is what, is what we were doing at that point. Um, and uh, we we successfully killed the bad guys so that that was what we wanted to do, go out and hunt these these guys down. Uh, they found us and you know we ended up to being the victors. And uh, eventually we towed, limped back to the FOB you know with an ac-130 overhead at that point you feel pretty comfortable uh and uh yeah so that was that was our first you know hey how you doing um aside from you know my initial fob you know and they're like okay you're gonna be all right man we're gonna be all right you know uh and they start to recognize that when they have a controller um, frankly any st operator they, they have them uh, you know with them and it's it's just good
0: just goodness. You know, that what always amazes me is in that like in that setting right there, your life is on the line. You've got fire coming and you've still got you've got an A-10, you got F-18, F-15, you got an A C 130 You've got to be able to, to communicate to all those aircraft and know their capabilities if they need to drop anything. So that's what's amazing. <laughs> to me about, about your role is how you can do that all under taking fire on the ground, talking to your guys on the ground and who, I mean, you, and more that I don't understand.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's whole scenario. I just explained was, is, is pretty simple really compared to a lot of the operations guys, uh, that, you know, my humble opinion are better than I would have could have ever been, um, the the admissions that they executed, um, much much longer, much more complex, a lot of different variables in there. I mean, it's amazing. Um, it, it really is amazing. All the things that you you just described, uh, it, I'm still in awe to this day. You know, when I when I think about what the, the operations that I witnessed, you know, whether I was in the Siege of Sodaf, um, the uh, the 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 task basically the task force command and control. Uh, center, you know, or or I was out there alongside him, or on the other side of a ridge line when when something else was going on. Have any understanding of what they what they actually did and the and the challenges that they overcame and was able to do all of those things that you described. Um, even being a guy that was um, well adept to it and you know qualified and competent and all that kind of stuff, I still look at look at at other guys and, and some of the uh, the the volume of work that they had to put in there and the expertise that it took. it's, it's just amazing. It really is.
0: Mm, yeah. I know that you have some strong thoughts on, on PTSD and how it doesn't have to be a big deal. Will you, will you talk a little bit about that? Maybe how, what you've experienced and then um, what you share with other, to help others going through it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, you know, I think it it kind of hit the nail on the head with some words that I would use. It, it's uh um, it doesn't have to be a big deal. And I say that because PTSD isn't new, right? It's not new to the human condition. Um it's just different and it's a lot more um, you know, information about it is a lot more readily accessible. And um, you know, just like in everything in this age of instant uh information people talk about it more, you know, and, and, and in some cases, uh, in some cases it's, it's really serious, significant clinical diagnosis, uh, that, that really needs some focused attention. Um, in a lot of cases, um, there are, there are simple things that, that we all can do. Um, and, and that, and I think the first step in that is exactly what you said, which is, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, because, because PTSD isn't, just a military phenomenon. It's it's not just something that people in combat experience. People experience it with all kinds of lifestyle situ- or life situations, whether it's a, co- a vehicle accident um, or some kind of, you know, a, abuse issue or you know whatever it may be. Um, it is just a traumatic event that affects you in a certain way, uh, and some of that is uh, you know. The, the mind and you know arguably you know the spirit trying to protect you in some in some form or fashion um and then what you do with that information is a whole other thing so the first thing is just acknowledge what it is you know okay and this isn't real be able to separate fact from fiction uh reality from um you know fantasy and all those different kind of things um my I guess my my first experience with it, you know, in in, in this context for the, for the military, would have been, uh, that would have been in April of 1994. Um, and you remember significant times like that. It's like white April, you know? Yeah, I know specifically it was April 90, 1994. It's when um, two Black Hawk helicopters were shot down uh, by friendly fire uh, and and some some confusion uh, in Northern Iraq. And at the time I was an need for senior in, in, uh, Southeast Turkey. Um, and I had, uh, I had the full bird for whatever reason come to, come to me. I saw kind of some army folks running around on this real little tiny site that we were in. Um, and I wasn't a combat controller at this time. I was um, security points, you know, protecting some assets and air base defense, you know, kind of stuff, protecting that that little footprint where we were up in those mountains, kind of near northern northern Iraq, northern Syria. Um and uh but we had uh some army folks uh and some some Blackhawks uh there. This is kind of in the time of um kind of post uh Post desert storm provide comfort, operation provide comfort kind of era. Um and uh said, Hey, we need you to hey, get some get some guys together. We've we've got to get some guys out of out out to two TAF, which is Second Turkish Air Force, little, little airstrip out there. Um, didn't really know what was going on. Then we got together for a little briefing. And they said, Hey, this is what happened. Um we've got to uh, to assist in that any way we can in in getting the remains uh, recovered Um, and you know really just this is I was I'm still kind of surprised at this but you know maybe it was a good thing, Uh, you know, and the colonel was like, "Um, this is going to be really bad if anybody doesn't want to do this, you know, opt out now and some, some guys kind of stepped backwards, like, yeah, man, I don't want to I don't have any part of this. And I was like, what? No, this is why we're here, you know? Um, and so we went out there and uh, long story short, uh, you know, the, we were there for, for quite a while. And and that night, I don't know, it was dark. It was probably midnight. The, the first black clock came in you know, with remains. From the recovery with pjs on board where uh where they they uh, extracted the remains and you know probably classified anything that that needed to be extracted from that the, the wreckage site basically uh for those two helicopters i think it was 26 people were on board and some of those were army guys that i was playing cards with playing space with the night before you know you just kind of you start to put that together in a later date um and so uh it, you know, strapped on the, the the rubber gloves and walked up to this this first uh first helicopter. It was you know open door on each side, and it was just a it was a, a small pile of, of body bags, except for the top, and the top was a uh, was a completely for the most part intact, completely burnt up um, cadaver. So this is my first experience with um not seeing uh, a dead person or a dead body but but a, a, a body in this condition right um and the smell I stays with you for a bit pretty much your life and so i look at the guy next to me and he looks at me like we're both surprised like you know it's kind of surreal and so um we we take it with all the honor that we can muster you know and and take it, uh, take that person's remains over to a tent where you know everything has to be inventoried, medically examined, you know, all those different kind of things. And then we start offloading body bags, and we're covered in body fluid, um, you know. And that, you know, it's just it's with you now. Like you're a part of this big time. And uh, I, I can't remember exactly how many more helicopters came in with remains, but it seemed like uh, quite a few. It was probably three or four or something. Um, but each one that came in, the fewer body bags they had because the PJs had a, a big undertaking as I understood it because we weren't four at the crash site, we were kind of at the next lily pad, you know from the crash site <laughs> or the uh, the, uh, the the place where those aircraft rested um, and then so as they were coming in, you know they became less and less organized, <clears throat> you know, as you can imagine, pulling, body bags up these cliffs and and whatever they had to to deal with and they start getting torn up and they're pretty much next thing you know you're out of body bags you're just using whatever you can and it literally got down to the point where you were just carrying pieces of parts um not to be you know i could get more graphic than that but i think that's graphic enough you know you're, you're carrying these things with with all of the dignity that you can um and and then it's over. Then you, you, you pass this stuff off to the medical authorities and other, other authorities and somebody else takes this from there. And, you know, those things have to go through that process of getting the remains back home. And there's a whole bunch of stuff right now. There's a big investigation going on and how this happened. Um, but our part of that mission was done. Um, so we went back to uh, our little, our little footprint there. And. um <laughs> I just take off the clothes and I, I throw them away because I'm I'm covered in this 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 clear body fluid. And I, I the smell, you know, I, it's, it's a weird thing. It's uh for, for years and even up to this day, you know, if I had a cheeseburger, I need to wash my hands after I'm done. Like I can't have that smell, you know? And so that's like a little PTSD, thing, right? But I didn't realize how much it really kind of impacted me, you know, and it took me, it took me a few years to really even kind of be comfortable with talking about it because it affected you in that way. Looking back on it now, having experienced some other things, totally comfortable with it, and I look at it and, and see what it was. You know, I even wonder myself, I'm like, why did that bother me so much? You know, um, and that's just—it's not. Maybe it's desensitized, uh, maybe desensitizing, or maybe it's something else or growth, but either way, you know, I look back on it now and I'm like, you know, we had to do a very important thing. um, And you you get over it. But um, so I I do a lot of talks to because I didn't talk about it. You know, I kept all that down inside, you know, you either, you don't want to reveal to people that you're not the tough guy, you know, or you let something bother you or whatever, you can move on. And there are times where you have to compartmentalize different things in order to be effective in what you've got to do today and get that. Um, but long-term health is, um, choo- choosing healthier things to, uh, to, to deal with those. And part of that is just talking about it, kind of recognizing it for what it is. Um, so those kind of PTSD things, uh, you know, came over into other aspects of operations, um, you know, where, uh, I can remember the, the look on a person's face. They were trying to, you know, I'm not, I don't have to go into great detail, but um, we we're getting ambushed in ambush at, at close range and they're trying to kill us. Um, so I kill them um, with organic weapon. Uh, and it, everything slows down in the slow motion, right? So I, and whether this is fabricated in my head somehow, or that's actually what I was seeing, that like minutes after that, all I could remember was the look on her face as soon as I was passing tracer mm-hmm. rounds, you know, through them, you know.
0: What did you mean by organic weapon?
1: So, um, or what I mean is my whatever firearms that I had on my person. So the okay. team's weapons. So if we have a BART a 19 you know uh saw sw- squ- uh, squad assault weapon uh, machine guns m4 nine millimeter grenade launcher you know all those different things whatever we had on our person okay if i'm talking about um, non-organic weapons i'm talking about naval gunfire i'm talking about aircraft dropping bombs or ac-130 doing a strafe okay so that's so if you that's killed what, this
0: person you saw his face so either was that through the scope or you were just that close
1: it was that close.
0: Wow. Uh, It was that
1: close. And, and, you know, it's to this day, I, I think back, I'm like, how could you really, you know, how could you really, you know, see that? But, uh, it's, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon about, and it really has to do with the human brain, I guess, but everything, and a lot of other operators can probably share this sentiment. At least this was my experience. Everything slows down, um, to where, um you can have like at that particular time i was the very first one firing when we got ambushed because i was in the first vehicle i was basically in the bed of a pickup truck for lack of a better explanation um in, in a very small movement um in a uh, very um uh, a little bit of a contested area so um I kind of thought it was going to happen and it was coming based off of some other information. And it did. Um, so when it did, I was, I was ready. I didn't have any aircraft to work, you know? Um, so as soon as it happened, I, the thing that triggered it off was an RPG. Um, I heard the RPG and all this gunfire opened up and there he was. And then there he was and there and there he was. And I didn't even think about it. Um, the only thing that happened was instantly I readied my weapon and was sending rounds through these guys that were shooting at me, <laughs> um, without even thinking. And that goes back to training that muscle memory. is just like, boom, mm-hmm. happens. Um, and now as it's going, and now I'm shifting my, my fire to, uh, the tree line while trying to get a hold of somebody so we can get aircraft on station that was just full of muzzle flashes, PKM, which is an automatic weapons fire. Uh, you know, all these all these different weapon systems in the tree line firing at us. And so I'm just laying down um, suppressive fire uh, along that tree line. But I'm having this whole conversation in my head. and this is probably in the matter of seconds. I have this whole conversation about, man, am I going to get court martialed? Why am I the only one shooting? I'm, I'm, I've, already, I've already killed these people. I'm the only yeah. guy shooting by doing something wrong. you just, and so I have this whole conversation. So that's what I mean when I say slow down in a span of maybe 15 seconds. Um, three guys are dead. I'm blasting a, a tree line. I'm the only one shooting, and I'm having this whole long conversation about, man, am I doing something wrong? You know, um, and, uh, and then, you know, ev- then everybody else joined the fight and they are like, you know, and all these <laughs> rounds are like, Oh gosh, thank, thank goodness. I'm not just shooting, you know, you just go through these things in your head. So I, I, uh, I tell you that to say that everything slows down where something happens for 15 seconds in your mind, it was 15 minutes or it's five minutes. It's like, I had plenty of time to have this conversation with myself. And if you had the ability to rewind it and look at it, you would say, actually, all of that happened inside 15 seconds. So the PTSD thing, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. I was just happy to be on this side of the dirt, you know, by the time we we got out of the kill zone and and completed that mission and did everything we had to do. Um, but a couple of days later, you know, it kind of dawned on me. Why, why am I still here? You know, how How did all of those weapons shoot in my direction? You know, and I'm, in, I'm right out in the open. How, how did I not get hit? You know, uh, to me, it has everything to do with God. I can tell you that um, 100%. But uh, you start to think about those things. And it starts to shape you a little bit. And then you start in your head thinking about, you know the expression on somebody's face, or just actually watching somebody as their labor breathing and, and 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 getting ready to, you know their their life is at an end. You know all those kind of things. Like it it affects you, and you replay it, and it, whether you want to or not, it replays in your mind, and you start to um, start to find unhealthy uh, ways to kind of cope and deal with those things. Um, for a lot of guys, and I was one of those guys. You know. uh, Alcohol was was a, kind of a, a treatment of choice, um, but it's, it's doesn't work. It's it's short lived, um, and so you you really have to find you know what's 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 going to heal you. And a lot of that is really just talking about it. Like me being on this podcast right now is a big deal, because uh, it's way out of my comfort zone. Um, but it's something that i have to do uh as a, as a as a way of reinforcing you know the treatment that i've already gotten that says hey man it doesn't have to be a big deal it, it happens uh learn learn what you need to learn from it pick up the good pieces and, and press on with life same as people have to do when they lose a loved one or they're in a horrible car accident or they lose all their finances and, uh, you know any i know i'm a lot of different stuff out there, but any kind of event that affects you so that's so traumatic to you, um, that you have trouble getting over it,
0: you got to. You've got a, a young guy, and I guarantee you there's some guys that right now are either planning to go into combat control to join the pipeline or in it. What advice would you give to these young guys who are wanting to go into that field?
1: Just burn the ships,
0: um. And what I mean by that is
1: uh, you have to be singularly focused on um, this is my mission. This is my role in life. Uh, so I'm going to sound a little contradictory here. So I say burn the ships and put everything in it. In other words, you can't be you can't be distracted. You can't be half in and half out. You, you can't go into this thing kind of thing half hearted uh, because you. Chances are you probably won't make it through the process. Um and another part of that is, um, are you really the person that needs to make it through the process? Uh, because you really have to commit yourself to this. So that would, that would be the first thing. Second thing that sounds a little contradictory is forgive yourself up front in the event that, um, that things don't go according to plan. And what, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is you don't have to make a backup plan. You say back, you know, make a backup plan is prudent, you know, but I just said burn the ships. Burn the ships means I don't need a backup plan because I'm gonna make it through this process, right? Um, But you have to be prepared to um, accept that this may not be the place where you need to be. And if that's the case, the process will reveal itself. Is this, if this is not the path that God wants you to go down Um, then you're not going to go down it all the way. Um, So, and and I, and the reason I bring this up is because I've, I've run a lot of selections, Um, officer selection, operators, enlisted operator selection, retraining, brand new guys out of the Air Force Academy or ROTCX or, um, or, you know, right straight out of, uh, you know, straight off the streets, you know, um, and every once in a while, there's, there's a handful of, of, of guys that come through the process and they don't get picked up. They don't make it. They're not well suited for one reason or another for, um, for, for, for performing in this profession. It doesn't mean that they don't have talents and gifts that need to be applied elsewhere. And like, that's where they need to be. And which is just as honorable and and, and awesome. Um, it's just not here. Um, and then they, and this is maybe a part of their non-selection, too. I don't know. They just just think that their life is over, right? So I say burn the ships, but if you burn the ships and and you know, no looking back, going straight forward and and something stops you from getting all the way through that process um life is still good right uh so so what i would tell so that whole other part is kind of a little anecdotal inject for those who will go through the process and not make it and if they don't it's okay (laughs) it's all right it's just it's just a thing support this nation and good things in the world in another way uh for those who do make it through the process um burn ships you better be prepared to prepare, right? So it was a Bobby Knight. I think he said uh, uh, the will to prepare is more important than the will to win uh, or something to that effect, right? Uh, or, the, or the will to uh, prepare to win uh, is, is more important than the will to win. Like right? you can will to win all you want, but if you don't get yourself ready mentally, um, physically, Spiritually, if you're not physically ready to go through, go through the door, you know, kind of nothing else matters, right? Because um, if I if I completely deplete you physically, uh, all the ment- all the intestinal fortitude and you know mental strength in the world isn't going to take you through that process if you just can't get your face yeah. out of this. You know, uh, so I, I would say um, burn the ships and dedicate yourself to that process and preparing to do it well the the other thing that I would say is um, be a sponge and and be prepared to to come into something like this um, as not just a student in the beginning waiting to be a cool guy in the end um, but be prepared to be a student for the rest of your life uh, because that's that's really what it is Um, and, and that's where the humility part comes in. I know really amazingly capable people that have done some amazing things uh, that uh, still look at themselves as a student trying to be become better, uh, and they're masters of their craft. They, they really are, um, but they they just don't stop that mindset. Um, so coming in with that 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 humble approach um, to getting after this and. and Striking that balance somehow between being competent or confident in your in your capabilities and being humble in your approach uh, is is not always easy to find. It'll find yeah. you.
0: You know, given all that you've experienced, you told me that I don't know the scariest or one of the scariest things you did was a death notification to family. Will you just just it, confirm that and maybe elaborate a little bit
1: uh that's a fact um anyone who has said uh that they were never scared never shaken in combat um one of two things either they're a psychopath or uh they're lying to you right so, um, toughest most capable most confident people going to an- interesting situations like that and um, where a lot is on the line, including her life. And, uh, it is scary. Um, but being able to operate beyond those fears and things is, is what's key to a soft operator for sure. Uh, so despite anything that, um, that I've experienced kind of in, in those ways in combat, um, we're doing some in, unusual things, unnatural things, uh, weren't quite as scary as, uh, when, when I had to, uh, be part of very few people that went to notify the family, um, that the person they love, uh, isn't coming back the same. Um, I said, you know, I, I use those, that phrase instead of not coming back because, you know, they're always with them. You know they're always with you, just like Mark. I see Mark in the background there. And that pretty awesome. That awesome painting that was that was rendered. <clears throat> gosh, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, and uh, so yeah, that was. You know, I'll, I'll try and make this this story quick. It's um, <clears throat> I went in the squadron and uh, Very few people know at the at this juncture, but. I was one of those people because I was, uh, I was Danny Sanchez's, uh, first team chief, you know, in ST. at the squatter, not, you know, you had guys in the pipeline and then, uh, Danny came to work for me for, for lack of, uh, better explanation. And so it was, um, it was my responsibility to make sure that, uh, the right guys were giving Danny the right training and I had the right training plans and I was part of getting him ready for combat. Um, uh, so it was myself and the commander chaplain, um, and then, um, one, o- one other officer, uh, named Matt. And, uh, we got on a small plane and we flew out to El Paso <clears throat> with our blues and nobody else in the squadron knows. And the reason, as you know, this is so critical, um, it's because, uh, next of kin notification. The learning that your loved one has been killed is uh, has no business out in the uh, internet sphere. <laughs> you know, they people deserve to um, to learn about these things in a dignified way, in a very and also in, in a very um, clear way, and truthful way, and like factual way. You know, not all the stuff you know is lost in translation. So, mm-hmm. in order to protect that information, um, all co- all communications surrounding that are locked off, and people just have no idea. They're going about their day, you know. And you have to walk by them, you're like, "Hey, what's going on? Oh, are you going somewhere, man? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm probably going to get on a. I don't know. I got to do this thing, you know, over in Georgia. You lie. You do whatever, whatever it takes to protect that information. But in in quick fashion, we're were on a small, small plane flying to El Paso. Um, We stopped for fuel along the way, changing to our blues. And I'm changing and I'm just like, my heart is pounding. I'm like, how's this going to go? Like, it's one thing to deal with, you know, the the, the trauma and combat and those kind of things. But now I've got to look at somebody and look at the pain and feel and see the pain as their as their heart breaks and they're being delivered this information i i don't i don't want to go into that emotional world like i just don't you know it's part of my self-preservation i just don't want to go down that emotional road but you have to because they're going to deal with it one way or another and they're either going to deal with it without you or with you um so we change into blues and we land in el paso we get a we get a suburban and it's quiet, you know. It's just um, there's there's a lot going on with communications back to the people that that need to know how things are going and when they're going and precise timing of everything. And we start to pull into this neighborhood, and um, we pull up, and we know we 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 already know where the it's, it's almost like an operation right we pull up we know exactly where the house is we know where the sidewalk is we know whether the adjacent neighbors we know everything about the entire situation um and we start to get out of the vehicles and it's a tight-knit uh neighborhood and community everybody seems to know each other um and you start seeing people notice you right away because you're your full service dress blues and you know for if you get out of a out of a vehicle that's not from around here, and people- And you didn't know if
0: Yvette was home, did you, at this time?
1: I'm trying to remember exactly how all that goes, but having been involved with um, several of of these type of events, I can tell you that uh, when I say it's like a military operation, it it is. Um, You have people talking, because sometimes, I mean, what if you have uh, divorced parents? You have to notify them exactly at the same time it's like a time on target yeah you know that precision has to happen one person's in california the other person's in new york you have to time that out so that they're notified at the same time you know by same type people delivering the exact same information um because that's that's the only right way to do it i i tell you that to say um, we knew she was home we were walking up and as we were getting out of the vehicle I'm just like, I don't want to do this, man. I, I just want to pretend like this didn't happen, you know, like he's okay. And I, I still haven't dealt with uh, the loss of Danny at this point. You know what I mean? All I know is I was – remember I said that one-third rotation? I was in Afghanistan. I receive all the all the new operators coming in. I'm the senior kind of operator guy in country, and I have to get them all trained up and spun up. And and you know, certifying it and some different things. Um, and then get let him go out the door. And so, you know, he and I were, were messing around at the, the near the operations center and you know, kind of jabbing it out, you know. We were always doing this little scrap thing where Danny was like, I, hey, you know, I'll take you, let's go. Um, and uh that was my last interaction with him. I was trying to work out his nerves, you know, you can see it on their face, the first deployment, you could see. No matter how cool they're trying to be, you can see that there's a, there's a part of them that's like, wow, this is real. Man, I could die, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so you, you just try to get them loosened up, you know, it's like it's going to be okay. And then, you know, they get, we'll get on the helicopter and I can only liken it to, you know, what it must be like as a as a parent sending your kid their first day of school. You know, you get on the bus, you're like, you look, boy, like? you're good, proud of you, love you. Uh, you know, because I was proud of him and I did love him. You know, we're walking up and um, I, the commander is the one that delivers the information, the squadron commander is the one. Uh, and so he's the first one uh, to speak. So we, we rap on the door and Danny's little brother uh, comes to the door and there's, it's like a, you know, has kind of black barred screen door kind of thing. And he comes to the door and he looks up at us. Um, and something to the effect of he, you know, he turns around and goes back in the house and he said, Mom, there's there's soldiers at the door. And you hear, uh, you know, I, I remember this that you hear this gasp. It's almost like the oxygen just left the house. You know, it's just yeah. like this, you know, you can feel it. I, I don't know how to describe it, but you just heard this, you know, kind of thing. Um and she came to the door and i'm just like holy cow um and the commander does exactly what he has to do very very direct you know i regret to inform you etc um and then then things happen from there and then you know we we come inside and, and try to comfort and, and, and talk and through that and whole thing uh i know that's i talked to the vet uh his mom uh, at least once a couple of few times a year. Um, and, and I know those, uh, the memory of some of those things are like, I don't even remember from this time to this time, you know, so traumatic. Um, and so that was the scariest thing, uh, that I've done. And, and, and to this day, uh, remains the the, the toughest thing uh, for sure. So we just stayed with her for uh, myself and, and, uh, you know, Matt Silos, who was the other officer with me, um just stayed with with her, you know, through the entire process, um until, until Danny returned home and and everything was done.
0: I'll put a link in the show notes to that interview with Yvette because she talks about that that uh notification from her standpoint and talks about you. So um Don, I know you have a hard stop. Anything you'd like to say in closing?
1: No, I, I, I really you know, I'm honored to have been asked to, to come on to this. Um, I've seen a couple of the episodes. Really, uh, really incredible thing that you're doing, Thad. Uh, I'm kind of humbled to be, you know, alongside of uh, some of the great folks that you've had on here. Um, and uh, I hope in some little way, uh, some of the things we talked about are helpful to somebody. There's probably a million other things that we could talk about, but maybe we can do that in another more focused time. But uh, I really appreciate it.